You ever hear of Mort safes? I hadn't either, until I started doing research for one of this month's stories. In the 18th and 19th centuries, starting in Europe but also spreading to the U.S. in the early 1800s, grave robbing started to get out of control. Fueled in part by universities whose surgeons and medical students were using corpses to advance medical knowledge, bodies were going missing from fresh graves with regularity. Security, police, and other authorities often turned a blind eye to these crimes, whether because they were paid off by the grave robbers or the universities themselves, or because they sympathized with the university's goal of learning more about human anatomy by dissecting fresh corpses. Well, the Scottish people would not stand for that. Enter mort safes, huge metal contraptions meant to encase a body's coffin, making it impossible to dig up and steal the body inside. Whoever owned the mort safe, sometimes a church, sometimes a private organization, would rent the mort safe out, and after a period of weeks, past the point the corpse would be useful to medical science, the casket was relocated to the person's gravesite for final placement. Seriously, look up some old photos of mort safes. Some of these things are truly beautiful, in addition to being completely genius. Of course, mort safes fell out of use when the pervasiveness of grave robbing started to fall. This month, on Death, Dying, and Other Things, two stories, one that ends and one that begins in a grave. In the first, Resurrection Men, a pair of body snatchers dig up a corpse. In the second, The Spiraling Grave, a woman wakes up in a coffin. Death and dying are the threshold between this world and the next, the boundary between light and dark, the barrier between worlds, and that's where we're going. We are going into the shadows to bring you stories of horror and heartbreak. From the Phantom Podcast Network, this is Death, Dying, and Other Things. I'm Justin Buskey. Stay with us. raining. Isn't it always raining in these sorts of tales? Tropes are tropes, but there's a bit of truth to them, after all. When the night is dark and clouds cover the moon, and everything's just a little bit filthier than usual, the unusual is more likely to make an appearance. So it was raining. That's the way my great-grandfather always started the story. The story was about his father, my great-great-grandfather, somewhere in New England. He wouldn't tell me where. Somewhere before the Civil War. He wouldn't tell me when. Now, my great-great-grandfather was young when this happened. Late teens, just looking for work. And this was the first job he'd gotten in quite a while. His boots were old. And oversized, too. And he must have lost them four or five times in the thick mud. It seemed to grab at him, the mud, to hold him fast, almost as if it was warning him, my great-grandfather would tell me. 
almost as if it was trying to prevent him from continuing on. He was following the man that employed him. His first name was Bill. At least that's how he introduced himself to my great-great-grandfather. He never gave a last name, apparently. Bill was what they called a resurrection man. A body snatcher. A grave robber. And he'd hired my great-great-grandfather to help him with a score. The local university, again, no mention of which, paid Bill to dig up bodies for them. They'd use them for research, dissecting them to make advances in anatomical knowledge. A local eccentric also had need of corpses for a more esoteric purpose, and also contracted Bill to procure them. My great-great-grandfather didn't know which client's order they might be fulfilling that night. Bill couldn't do this work alone, I guess. It was hard and he was past his prime, plus the pay was bad. But it did pay, and he needed money, so my great-great-grandfather took the less-than-respectable job of assistant grave robber and found himself trudging through the mud. The operation was simple. Bill had told them the plan in the bar they shared drinks at before heading out into the wet night. The gravekeeper turned his lights out at around 11 each night, so they'd go at 11.30. The rain would help, Bill said. Less likely to be heard in a downpour. Reaching the grave, in fact, despite the rain, the mud, and the accelerating wind, was the easy part. The hard part came when Bill pointed at the fresh grave mound, rainwater running down in miniature rivers and creeks, and told my great-great-grandfather to start digging. The mud was exceptionally sticky here. Great force was required to get the shovel even into the soil, and once my great-great-grandfather had gotten the shovel full of dirt out of the ground, he had to shake it pound it against the ground, and hit it against headstones to get the dirt that so eagerly clung to the shovel to give up its grip. The water that mixed the dirt into mud doubled, maybe even tripled its weight. It was back-breaking work, and took hours upon hours. During a break to catch his breath, my great-great-grandfather took a moment to examine the nearby headstones, or the lack of them. He raised the question to Bill, who had his hat over his eyes and was lounging under a nearby tree. Bill raised his hat up just far enough to get a good look at my great-great-grandfather, and then rephrased his question back to him. You want to know who we're digging up? My great-great-grandfather considered, and then nodded. These bodies don't belong to nobody, Bill said. County buries them here because there ain't nowhere else to bury them. No one round to claim them. And then, that was that. My great-grandfather got back to work. Before long, he had scooped half the dirt out of the grave. But a new problem was presenting itself, the rainwater. Falling harder than ever, it was building up, filling the hole with standing water. Between shovelfuls of mud... My great-great-grandfather was now splashing inches of water out of the grave. Fruitlessly, too, because the water would simply run right back into the grave or be replaced immediately by new rainwater. He asked Bill if he would help. 
Perhaps Bill could deal with the water while he focused on the mud. But Bill told him off, leaving him to work alone. And then Bill reiterated that if they didn't get the corpse out, there would be no pay. My great-great-grandfather put the shovel down for a moment and smoked a cigarette as best he could, given the wet conditions. At this point, Bill was getting impatient. It was past 1 a.m., and they were behind schedule. Walking over to the grave for the first time all night, Bill saw just how dire the situation was. The rainwater was so deep, there was no telling how much dirt my great-great-grandfather had scooped out and how much longer there was to get to the casket and the corpse. My great-great-grandfather was, at this point, up to his knees in water and waist-deep in the grave, but he didn't know how far he had sunk in the mud or how many gallons of water now surrounded him. Bill cursed, yelled at my great-great-grandfather, and then joined him in the grave, using his hat to toss out the rainwater while my great-great-grandfather continued digging. This was a constant process, like bailing out a boat that has a hole in its hull. Beginning to feel like he was in a damaged lifeboat, my great-great-grandfather turned to Bill and asked if they should give up for the night and come back the next night, or maybe even the next, when the storm had let up. Bill turned to him and explained what a horrible idea that was. You don't think there'll be extra guards if they find a half-dug-up grave? And what about the soil? Once all this rain is dried, the ground's going to be compacted and hard. You want to dig through that? My great-great-grandfather agreed that this was probably not the best plan. All right, then. Get back to work. When my great-great-grandfather finally hit something solid with his shovel, it was two hours later. Bill was keeping the hole relatively free of standing water, and my great-great-grandfather had been able to keep fairly unimpeded because of it, but it was still hard work. When he felt the impact of his shovel against the wood and heard the hollow reverberation, he grinned, not because of any pleasure at having dug up a corpse, but because he was finally near the end of some of the most grueling work he had ever done. Bill stood straight up and wheeled around. Clear it off, clear it off! He and my great-great-grandfather did their best to clear off as much of the mud and rainwater as they could from the top half of the coffin. Water started building up again, quickly and immediately. Bill grabbed the shovel from my great-great-grandfather, handed him the hat, and instructed my great-great-grandfather to deal with the already growing water level. Bill, in a move my great-great-grandfather estimated he probably had done a hundred or so times before, wedged the shovel under the lid of the casket, and then used it to pry the lid off the thing. Rainwater rushed into the coffin, displacing air that had been trapped for a day or two, air that was thick with the smell of death. The stench hurried to my great-great-grandfather's nostrils, and he fell forward, vomiting into the slowly raising rainwater. It swirled around, mixing with the water and circling the makeshift drain that the cracked-open casket had created. Pull yourself together, Bill said. Bill had cracked each wooden plank off at the middle, and now my great-great-grandfather was looking down at the sunken face of some newly dead old woman. 
Bill must have noticed how incredibly green he was, and finally took some pity on the young man, because he told my great-great-grandfather to hop out of the now-exhumed grave and go to Bill's pack. Inside, he found a rope, which Bill told him to toss down. Bill grabbed the end of the rope and kneeled down in the grave. Rainwater had nearly filled the casket, and the body was floating in it. He plunged his arms into the water, wrapped the rope around the chest of the woman's corpse, and tied it in a loop just below the arms. Then Bill looked up at my great-great-grandfather. Okay, count of three, you're going to hoist the body up with the rope, got it? My great-great-grandfather nodded, but then something caught his eye over Bill's shoulder, down near the bottom of the casket, near the foot of the grave. Something in the shallow water. Something moving. Something thick and slick. Something that reminded my great-great-grandfather of a huge earthworm, wriggling and pulsing, and then disappearing back into the water and mud. What, what was that? My great-great-grandfather asked Bill. Did you see that? Bill looked over to where he was pointing. Of course, Bill didn't see anything. And soon, he had turned back to my great-great-grandfather and told him to get pulling on the rope. He bent down and grabbed the rope, wrapping it around his hands once to get a good grip on it, and started pulling. But the body didn't budge. Bill called him weak, and my great-great-grandfather gave it another heave, but again, the body didn't budge. Bill spat toward my great-great-grandfather, and then the rope in his hands moved in the opposite direction. The old woman's body disappeared under the water. The rope went tight, and he was thrown off balance, pulled forward. He fell into the grave, slapped into the mud, and Bill helped him to his feet, just in time for him to catch another glimpse of whatever was in that grave with them. There, there it is again, he shouted. But again, Bill saw nothing, and he hoisted my great-great-grandfather out of the grave and handed him the rope again. Bill leaned down, grabbing the rope himself nearer to the body, and yelled, Pull! They both pulled with all of their might, and were met with resistance, and a pull in the opposite direction. My great-great-grandfather let go of the rope, but Bill was pulled headfirst into the open casket. He straightened up, sputtering and retching, trying to keep himself from vomiting. My great-great-grandfather backed up, sure things were about to turn very badly for them. Come on, he shouted to Bill. Get out of there. Yeah. Bill yelled back, and then went back to work on the corpse. By the time they noticed those thick, rubbery appendages wrapping themselves around Bill's ankles, it was too late. My great-great-grandfather had seen something in the water and mud of that grave, and now it had a hold of Bill. Thick, tubular things, brown and wriggling like gigantic earthworms, but working together towards some common goal. One wrapped around Bill's right wrist, and then there was nowhere to go. Bill looked up at my great-great-grandfather with fear etched on his face, and then the screaming started. The things wrapped around Bill's ankles tightened. My great-great-grandfather heard a sickening crack, then saw Bill's right leg fold the wrong way. 
my great-great-grandfather turned and ran, and only turned back once, to see Bill finally folded in half by those great flailing limbs, and dragged down into his fresh grave. the scraping that woke her, loud and pitched low like thunder. It made the walls of her container rumble and shake, and she realized quickly that a container is exactly what she was in. The walls were barely three feet apart, and the entire space was just barely large enough to accommodate her small frame, save for some space near her feet. She panicked and throwing her hands against the surface just inches in front of her face, she found it easy to move, swinging out on a hinge. Cold air rushed in, caressing her face and cooling the beads of sweat quickly building on her brow. What she now clearly recognized as the lid to some sort of box rose to near vertical and then stopped, held in place by some unseen latch. She sat up and was faced with the grim reality of her current situation. Emily Grant, for that was her name, currently occupied a moderately-sized coffin, and what's more, that coffin was sliding down a rough stone slope. Investigating further, she saw that the stone slope curved to her left, passing her again on the far left side of a great cylindrical cavern until it passed back around several feet beneath her. The stone slope did this for as far as she could see down below, though because of the angle of the slope, she could only see ten or so rotations. It also did the same above her, terminating six or seven rotations up in a slick stone ceiling. Emily Grant, in this coffin, now understood she was sliding down a great spiraling path, down into darkness, towards something she couldn't see. Was this coffin hers? She leaned her head over the side and saw clumps of dirt clinging to the coffin's surface. Some dirt fell off with each bump and scrape the coffin took on its way down. She ran her hands around her and saw, by the dim light of that great cavern, that mementos were all around her. A photo of her and her mother, an old stuffed animal, a can of her favorite beer, several small sealed envelopes with her name on them. Had there been a funeral? She couldn't remember. If there was a funeral, it would have had to have been hers. She was in the casket, after all. But she certainly was alive. The coffin continued its downward descent, spiraling towards something below. It moved at quite a clip. So fast was this casket that when Emily relaxed her body, she was pressed against the right-hand wall of the coffin by the centrifugal force. Deciding that it was best to get out of this runaway toboggan, Emily hopped to her knees with the intention of jumping out and onto the stone pathway that spiraled above and below her. 
She thought better of it, though, when she gauged the angle at which the path sloped. The sharp angle was certainly contributing to the speed her uncommon vehicle was accumulating, and that, combined with the slick appearance of the rock, made her second-guess her ability to find footing on the smooth stone. She suddenly felt very much in danger. Emily regretted her decision to wait out the traveling coffin when an hour had gone by and she was still traveling downward. She had just assumed there was a bottom to this descent, and that assumption was proving less and less likely as the minutes ticked by. The features of her surroundings never changed. There was always just enough light to see the dingy stone carved into this repeating spiral. She wasn't sure how far she might have gone, either. The certainty that she would reach some kind of bottom to this cavern had begun to be overtaken by a tightness in her chest and intruding thoughts about far worse fates. What if the stone spiral ended before the bottom, and once she reached that point, she felt her death? Her heart rate picked up at the thought of falling through blackness to a fate she could not see. And then she thought, wasn't that exactly what was happening right now? Minus the falling, of course, but Emily soon realized she was descending down toward a fate she could not see, and then her mind raced faster, thinking of a million fates that could await her, and then her heart raced faster in response. The scraping of the coffin against stone grew in her ears as her blood pressure rose, and soon it was a roar, ringing through space to cloud all of Emily's perceptions. Her eyes darted with blurred uselessness, trying to find a solution to this seemingly endless journey, and of course, finding no fix. Emily realized she had nodded off, lulled into something resembling sleep by the white noise of the constant scraping. Okay, she told herself. Okay, I have to keep busy. First, how did I get here? She turned the question over in her mind, flipped each word on its head, examined the corner of the letters looking for secrets, as if the shapes and sounds of the alphabetical characters held the answer to this current mystery. This question, how did I get here, turned into a second in short order, she could see it happen in her mind's eye. Letters rearranged themselves. Some morphed into others. When the transformation was complete, she was left with another simple question. What could she remember? Not much, it turned out, and so that question turned into a third. What could have possibly brought her here? That question turned out to be far too vague, with too many answers, and so she settled on a fourth question. What was she doing here? That question was impossible to answer, and so she thought of a fifth. What was this place? This fifth question, while interesting intellectually, was useless in practicality, so she continued on to a sixth. Where was this place? Again, an impossible question whose answer would be useless. A seventh question replaced the sixth. How was she going to get out? This one hung in Emily's mind for longer than the others. She looked downward again, down the spiraling chasm, down to the black nothingness that waited down below. Then she looked up, to the top of that pit that she could no longer see. Seeing no answer to the seventh question, either, 
her mind returned to the first. How did I get here? She felt weak and tired. The mental energy she had just spent running through those seven questions felt like running a marathon to her. For a moment, she thought the cavern must be shrinking as she descended, but on a closer examination, that didn't seem to be the case. The air felt heavy, thick, and constricting. It felt like the air was trying to hold on each time she breathed it into her lungs and then tried to breathe it out, like it was trying to suffocate her. Emily laid down in the casket and somehow fell right asleep. When Emily woke, she didn't know how long she had been asleep, and she didn't much care either, but she was still spiraling downward, out of control. It was getting colder, mist danced in front of her face with each breath, and Emily was beginning to find it hard to think of solutions to her predicament any longer. The scraping casket against the smooth stone started to comfort her even. At least it was consistent. She could find some solace in that. She stared at the stone ceiling some eight feet above her and watched the patterns in the rock pass by. The rock swirled. Cracks started and ended. The air grew colder. And so did Emily's skin. Eventually, she had to close the top of the casket back up to keep in some heat. And that's when she closed her eyes again and made a decision. Perhaps she'd just ride it out, wherever the spiral took her. This episode of Death, Dying, and Other Things was produced and edited by me, Justin Buskey. The stories, both Resurrection Men and The Spiraling Grave, were written by me too. You can follow me on Twitter, at Justin Buskey. Intro and outro music is by the prolific Eric Warnke. Check him out on SoundCloud. Special thanks to Mud, and to Mist. Death, Dying, and Other Things is a member of the Phantom Podcast Network. Be sure to check out all the other great shows. New episodes the first Thursday of every month. This has been Death, Dying, and Other Things, and I've been your host, Justin Buskey. Stay out of the shadows. Thank <laughs> you.